0: Welcome to this, uh, this, this public lecture and thank you very much uh, for, for coming. Uh, this event is jointly hosted by the Department of uh, Geography uh, here at LSE and also the, the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the, uh, and the Environment. My name is Giles uh, is Atkinson and I'll be chairing uh, tonight's uh, event. Uh, I'm based in both of those uh, sponsoring uh, bodies at, uh, at LSE. I'm delighted uh, to have this opportunity to introduce our speaker this evening. Uh, Pavan uh, Sukdev is the study leader of the G8 uh, Plus 5 Commission Global Assessment of the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, that now I'm going to call TEB uh, for for short. Uh, Prior to taking up uh, that role, he was head of Deutsche Bank's, uh, global markets business in, in India but his environmental concerns were evident with his being then a founder of the Green Indian States Trust or, or GIST as it's otherwise uh, known and it was with uh, GIST that Pavan was responsible for a number of um, significant contributions uh, that sought to measure uh, what was the value of India's natural uh, capital and in fact within that work uh, you can see the genesis of um, Pavan's um, vision uh, for, uh, for Teibh now, Teab itself has been uh, hugely uh, influential. It was launched to great acclaim at Nagoya in uh, October 2010, and I think the fact that the uh, the Teab acronym um, has so quickly established itself in um, global discussions about uh, ecosystems, economics. And their uh, value is uh, just one indication of the uh, the influence uh, that uh, that it, uh, it's had. Now, TIBAS uh, has benefited from the support of a number of institutions, uh, such as DFID, Defra, the European Commission, and, uh, and UNEP, and also a superb team of writers and uh, researchers. But absolutely central to all of that has been Pavan uh, him, himself as uh, as study leader. And in fact, it's difficult to see uh, how uh, Thieb's importance in terms of shaping the debate about the value of ecosystems on um, three uh, different uh, but related fronts, not just in academia, but also in policy at the global, national and local levels, but also uh, business as well. So it's difficult to see how all of that could have been achieved without uh, Pavan's guidance and his vision and, uh, and leadership. Um, i 'd like now then to to hand over to our our speaker um, Pavan will talk for i think about forty five minutes and then we 'll have an opportunity for uh, for questions. Um, the presentation slides will be uh, available after the, sometime after the, uh, the, the talk, either via the, the public events um, website for LSE or the Department of Geography uh, and Environment. So that, Chesley, is it for me, please? Um, if you join me in welcoming our speaker, uh, Pavan Sukhdev.
1: Thank you, Giles, for your kind words of introduction. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be here with you this evening uh, to share what is, as Giles has mentioned, clearly a passion with me, which is uh, the conflict and the potential confluence between economics and nature. Um, Teeb's genesis, for sure, are in in some of the early work that was conducted by many people, and uh, what Giles uh, politely forgot to mention is that apart from uh, a remarkable team of more than 500 authors who worked collectively on TEEB, and uh, with some effort from my side to herd these wonderful, brilliant cats. Uh, we also benefited from an amazing advisory board and uh, two people from the London School of Economics family are on that. as Lord Nicholas Stern and Giles Atkinson. So with their help and their support and these advisors are truly the sort of who's who of the environment world and of the business world as well. Uh, it was great to have them, and they were my uh, my source of inspiration and support. So thank you, Giles. Um, today's topic is about TEEB, but specifically about the theme which I believe to be central to TEEB, which is ending the economic invisibility of nature. And I thought I would present to you uh, glimpses and vignettes from TEEB, but around this theme, so that you can see how the whole of TEEB hangs together, TEABE, for the policymaker, TEEP for the local government, TEAP for business, indeed TEEP for people. It's a difficult area and it's certainly not an area that can be reduced into uh, in anything as simple as uh, you know producing a big number. So let me begin by telling you a little story about the big number. I went to Australia last year, a country I dearly love because I've worked with ANZ Bank for 11 years before Deutsch. And, uh, uh, My wife and I, my wife is here, we bought a little resort out there, uh, basically a, uh, a plantation which then turned into an ecotourism resort and where we are reforesting the land. So I look for excuses to travel to Australia, so what I tell you about them is said with love. But they insisted, the people who invited me, that my lecture should be called this, What is the World Worth? So I tried to explain first in a complex, academic way that this wasn't really a meaningful question, then I tried to explain with examples, then they wouldn't listen, basically, Australians don't listen much. So I said, fine, okay, you're inviting me, you're paying my travels and whatever, so your call. So I started this title, What is the World Worth?, and I basically went through the lecture as follows. introduce myself and said, okay, so basically the world is the biosphere. So I want you to think of a planet that doesn't have a biosphere. Mars, obviously. So clearly no biosphere, no life, uh, no human beings, nobody to buy and sell goods and services from each other, no economy, value of economy, zero. Now I want you to think of another planet which has a biosphere. Looks like Earth, yeah? Life, species, human beings, economy, one economy, basically. Okay, so you've gone from zero economy to one economy. So the incremental value of the biosphere is one minus zero divided by zero, and that's infinity. Thank you very much. The lecture is over. And I walked <laughs> off the stage. <laughs> so I, I believe I actually taught the Australians a lesson there. And then I came back after a few a few seconds and continued with what, it was, what the, the subject, I think, in those days was something else. It was more about business and, uh, and putting nature on the balance sheet, as they said, you know, bringing a business perspective to it. Today's theme is, why must we end the economic invisibility of nature, in a sense? Let me begin with talking to you about the Australian, about the, sorry, (laughs) about the Amazonian rainforest. Australia does have rainforest, by the way. One of the better things about the place is that. Um, The Amazonian rainforest is, is, as you know, being... Uh, still deforested quite aggressively, despite the rates having slowed down to almost a fourth of what they were a few years ago. Um, and of course, a lot of that deforestation is driven by all of the obvious factors, such as the extent of uh, cattle raising and the use of uh, land for other purposes. It, largely, cattle ranching is the main driver of deforestation. Uh, but I think also part of the problem here is that the Amazon rainforest, or indeed most tropical forests are not seen for what they are. Firstly they are mitigation engines. They are basically helping us to mitigate the effects of climate change. They are trying to absorb carbon. They already store a massive one-fourth of the total carbon and they are capturing, and this I'm talking about what we call climax uh, forests, are capturing something like 4.8 gigatons of carbon dioxide. And given that total human emissions of carbon dioxide or human activity-related emissions are of the order of 30 gigatons, we are talking about almost a 15% mitigation of global carbon dioxide emissions, which are attributable to rainforests, to tropical forests. Work has been done. Uh, The Elias Review specifically explored this point on what is the economic benefit if you take uh, carbon pricing and if you work out the economic benefit of halving deforestation, the answer at some fairly aggressive discount rates came to quite a staggering sum of almost $4 trillion. So there's economic logic behind this, but it doesn't happen because no one actually pays for this. No one rewards as yet in any substantial way the rainforest nations for the job of mitigation that is going on. And you can understand that, it's a north-south issue, it's about public goods and so on. But let's ask something more more local and less to do with the outside world, more to do with Latin America. This same Amazonian rainforest is also a water pump. Basically the northeastern trade winds as they go past the, the Amazonas, collect water vapor, so the scientists tell us, and that same uh, stream then creates clouds, it precipitates, and essentially that is part of the water cycle of Latin America. The rain there falls in in uh, Uruguay, Paraguay, the plains, uh, the plains of the basin of the La Plata Basin, Argentina, Mato Grosso, which is part of Brazil. All of those areas basically are the granary of Latin America. These agricultural economies collectively are something like a trillion dollars per annum. And, of course, providing fresh water to those agricultural economies is a significant ecosystem function and it's very valuable. But of course no one ever pays the state of Amazonas anything for that function. And that is part of, it could be called a market failure, but it is basically part of the problem of not recognizing public goods and services for what they are worth. Another ecosystem. This is a coral reef actually from Australia. This is a shot on the Great Barrier Reef. You can see a tiny helicopter in, in the background there. If I lower the lights a bit, you probably will. And corals are, are an amazing ecosystem, not least, not least because of the beauty and, and species diversity that they represent, but because of what they provide to humanity and who in humanity and how little people generally know about this. Because if you see the extent of what we call warm water coral reefs, it's all across here from Micronesia across to Australia. Into the, into the east, Southeast Asian countries, across to the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, all the way across to Madagascar, and finally in the Caribbean. And all of these are uh, parts of the world where there are a large number of poor fisher folk who survive on the fish that are from the nurseries, which actually are coral reefs. An estimated 500 million people rely on coral reefs for their food and their survival and their livelihoods. And as we know, uh, there is a problem with coral reefs uh, because of uh, temperature increases and because of uh, a combination of absorption of carbon dioxide in the ocean, which reduces the alkalinity of the water, which then reduces the ability of the the carbonate substrate that is the base of corals. Uh, There is a double whammy. It's not possible for corals that have been bleached as a result of warming to actually grow back and that is a significant problem because these areas are poor. It is not possible for a poor fishing family to move off the coast of Indonesia or the Philippines, move inland and do something quote-unquote something else because there are people inland who are doing something else there. It's their land. You can't simply relocate people and Philippines already has a program. It, It estimates that there are 25 million people at risk in the Philippines due to coral losses. And this is a huge problem, not just because it's an economic issue, but because it relates to that particular segment of the human population. We are talking here about one-eighth of humanity, so this is not a small issue. In fact, if you go on almost any ecosystem and you look at almost any aspect of of either the species side of biodiversity or the genetic side of biodiversity, you will find similar stories. You will find that, that biodiversity, which is basically the living fabric of this planet, And that's a technical definition, but it's basically life on Earth. You will find that biodiversity at all levels, at the ecosystem levels, or at the species level, or at the genetic level, does provide valuable services to humanity, and that most of those services do not tend to be uh, priced by any markets and are, in fact, not private goods or services at all. They are public goods and services. They are provided largely free. They are provided largely in a way that doesn't prevent other people from using them. Clean air, fresh water, nutrients that flow from the forest to the field of the poor farmers, these are all things that come free from nature. Whether we are looking to go into ecosystems for recreation, or whether we are looking to them, as in the case of the Amazonas rainforest, to provide fresh water for agriculture, or whether we are thinking of them as carbon stores with species, whether we are thinking of them as providers of food, fiber, and fuel, or whether it's design inspiration for an advertising agency, or whether we are looking at them as pollinators, as providers. and An estimate was made that insect-based pollination was worth almost $200 billion per annum in terms of the economic value provided. But, of course, no bee ever sent you an invoice. So, therefore, it doesn't count. It's an externality. Um, genetic level as well, medicinal discovery. Most of the medicinal uh, uh, solutions we have actually... Gen- Uh, the genesis is some natural source. It could be in a rainforest, a reef, or anywhere else. And also providing adaptive capacity and alternative uh, crop species. So these are some of the many values that come to us from nature and and do provide uh, resource inputs as well as service inputs and regulation of uh, the supplies into the global economy. But most of them are just not priced. And that tendency of not valuing what you don't price is a deep human tendency and that in fact begins uh, a whole slew of problems. It is this space, it is this space of problems and their solutions that TEB is all about and that is again uh, expressed in the way that TEB has been organized which is that we decided quite early on that we needed to write these reports but they needed to be written not just for uh, the good purpose of study but to make change happen on the ground. So we wrote a separate report with the uh, academic community in mind which is the technical report on the economics and ecosystems backbone, if you like, the theory. Then we wrote another one which is focused on national policymakers. Then we wrote another one which is focused on local governments because what works at the national level in policy terms may or may not translate on the ground, realities are different. And then we wrote yet another one which is basically TEAP for business And finally, we also have, and and those of you who came in early saw some film spots which were done to communicate these messages to people. And last but not the least, at the Nagoya meeting in Japan, and that logo out there is basically the the COP10, as it's called, meeting in Nagoya last year, we also did a a synthesis which strung together a lot of this learning into a simple narrative. The problem of course goes back to the problem of public goods and here's an example which I want you to uh, focus on to think through the economics of public goods and how much difference it makes when you do not use as your economic lens only private profits. Uh, We are talking here about mangroves and shrimp farms and this example is from uh, South Thailand Uh, Professor Barbier, who's also a member of our advisory board, had actually written uh, one of the original papers on this. Um, The conversion of mangrove forests to shrimp farm is something quite commonplace in Southeast Asia and it happens for purely economic reasons and is supported and has been supported for some decades by governments. Um, And the logic has been sort of apparently self-evident because The value of shrimp output after costs is typically, in this example, something like $9,600, valued over a life of about eight to nine years, whereas if you just look at the public goods that are provided by the mangrove, which means fuel wood, essentially, for the local communities, then the value of that is scarcely $600. So the logic is convert, because it's better for the community to get that much more value. But that's not the full story. Because you're forgetting that actually, those, of those $9,600, the majority is in fact subsidies. So if you take out subsidies, then that comparison between keep the mangrove there for what it provides versus convert to shrimp farm is not that striking. It's, but it's still a, a positive argument. It is better to convert if the economic lens of private profits is the only lens. But finally, when you start looking at the ecosystem services that are delivered by the mangrove, the answers become quite different because then you have to start adding in the value of storm protection that is provided by the mangroves, and that's been estimated based on damage caused to life or to property and and livelihoods in areas which are not protected by mangroves versus those that are, and that's valued at something like $11,000 per hectare over that time, nine-year life. And conversely, you have to recognize that when you convert a mangrove to a shrimp farm, effectively salination and chemical deposition result in that land becoming unusable even for shrimp farming in four to six years so the net result is that you're creating a cost which someone has to pay for it is usually the government that has to either restore that land or take it as being a write-off and the cost of that write-off or the cost of restoration is another ten thousand dollars so where are we comparing uh positive 9,000 versus 600 on the one hand, and where are we comparing a negative 11,000 versus a positive 12,000? And the difference between those two comparisons is that, of course, in one case, we are accounting for the public wealth that is generated by the mangroves and which is written off if you destroy them, and in the other case, you're simply ignoring the public goods aspect of the mangroves, and that is indeed the, the public bads aspect of the shrimp farm. Now, the thing is, this is not just a Thailand story. This is actually a global story. It's the same problem in magnified form if we look all over the world. Recently, a study was done of the same issue by a company called Truecost for the UN Principles for Responsible Investment. And their conclusion was that if we looked at the top 3,000 corporations around the world, the top 3,000 listed companies, the total impact of these corporations, business as usual, they're not doing anything illegal, just normal business, is of the order of $2.2 trillion, $2. 2 trillion. And a lot of that is, is climate-related, emissions-related. Some of that is, is other pollutants, and some of it is use of fresh water, some of it is Various other sort of environmental costs, but these are a collection of costs that are imposed on society by corporations doing business as usual. And by the way, these are just the top 3,000 corporations. If you add on all of the other corporations, then that's another 2 trillion. And if you also add on the public sector, which means government, then that's another 2 trillion. By the time you're finished adding these sums up, you end up with something like upwards of $6 trillion per annum of costs, social costs imposed by business as usual and that's like one-tenth of the global economy. So these are not small numbers anymore. And in a sense, that's my first answer to the question as to why we must end the economic invisibility of nature. Because the costs and the risk to society of doing business as usual are just too large to be ignored. But there's another dimension to this. It's not just about the overall cost to society being too big and the benefits too small of ignoring it, but... There is another aspect which is to do with the poor. Um, this is one of the key uh, findings to me of, of the TEEP study, which is that if we look at ecosystem services, which means the production, for example, of nutrients, recycling of nutrients and fresh water by the forests into the through the aquifers to the fields, or the provision of pollination services, or the ability of the poor to go harvest fuel wood for their homes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, add all that up. These are largely, again, public, so the GDP of countries don't account for these things. They don't account for quality of fresh water or the flow of fresh water and nutrients. But the numbers are not huge. So you can say that the GDP accounts, if you like, the national accounts of countries like Indonesia, India, and Brazil, are misstated to the extent of 10 16 21%, which means that they are under-reporting production. In other words, they are reporting only man-made production but not natural production. So, yeah, sure, that's a problem, okay. So, But the point is it's only wrong by 10 to 20%. So given that this is about nature, well, you know, is that a problem? You might ignore it if you just look at it as a fraction of GDP. So we asked the question, okay, there are benefits, they are flowing to people. To whom do they flow? If the nutrients and fresh water stop flowing from the forests to the fields, who suffers? Oh, well, the answer is the poor farmer, okay? If the trees and and, uh, the forests are not there for collection of fuel wood. Who suffers? Oh well the poor farmer's wife has to cook, naturally she would suffer. If you do not get um, leaf litter from the forest then who suffers? Oh well, cows and goats can't go into the forest so the poor farmer suffers. We kept asking different questions about the services that are provided by the forest and the answer kept coming back, it's the poor farmer. So clearly we were using the wrong denominator and the wrong numerator So the real comparison is not take ecosystem services and just divide by GDP because that includes banking and advertising and all kinds of other things which are not relevant and people like me who are actually not relevant because we don't collect fuel wood and we don't have cows collecting leaf litter. Um, But you have to look at the GDP of the poor, of the poor farmer. So when you do that, the first thing you realize with a start is just the sheer number of people you're talking about. 350 million in India, 90 million in Indonesia, 20 million just forest gatherers in Brazil. We're talking about large numbers of people and the second thing you realize is that if you take what benefits they get from these ecosystems and ecosystem services and divide that by how much is their livelihood incomes, then the answers are not 10 to 20 percent. They're more like 45 to 90 percent. So half to 90 percent of the livelihood incomes of the poor in these circumstances are actually coming to them free from nature. So if you are careless about managing these resources, or indeed about the access of the poor to these resources, then you are in fact cutting at the very root the livelihoods of the poor. That is the problem, because you cannot, if you are serious about solving for poverty, you cannot begin by deciding that the income of the poor must be curtailed, and you are going to turn everyone into a Ferrari manufacturer or whatever it is that you think you can. I mean we're talking about more than a billion people out here, not everyone can spend their time making Ferraris. Therefore there is a second dimension to this problem which is that the losses of that we talk about of nature with business as usual going on will be a significant cost to the poor and it will in fact defeat programs of poverty reduction, because you are beginning not by building education or building health, but by reducing nature flows to the poor. That's not a workable solution. So we do need to look at this so-called old development paradigm, which has been supported for more than a few decades by uh, many development financing institutions, where they believe that some form of combination of trickle-down and investing heavily in infrastructure is going to solve problems. Ladies and gentlemen, I have seen many hydroelectric dams, next to which there are huts of villagers who have no electricity. So I know from personal experience it doesn't work, and trickle-down takes decades and decades and decades. We don't have decades and decades to solve for human poverty, and we should not have. It's a moral issue. It's beyond just solving it. It's also why we should not solve it. So with that, to that, as, that sort of quick background in terms two, and there are, by the way, other reasons why we should try and end the economic invisibility of nature, let me now embark into what can be done through the approach that Teab advocates and how it is being done as we speak. The first point that I have to make is that uh, the Teab approach, which does, of course, target to bring uh, nature and its values into the economic calculus is not a simplistic approach. This is not about simply monetizing the whole of nature or presenting some kind of a cost-benefit-based solution for stewardship of the entire planet. It's nothing like that. It's nothing as simplistic or silly as that could possibly be. What we believe is in a three-tier approach towards the value of nature. You can recognize value. If you are, for instance, a tribal community, you may have a, a forest which you consider sacred. Now, you don't need any calculus, don't even need to know what comes from the forest to recognize that that community values that forest at a huge price, in fact to the cost of their lives, and that they will defend it sometimes to their last. So it is a value that has been ascribed to that forest, which is a societal value, it is a deep emotional and religious feeling that they have for that forest, which is valuable. Coming away from that, you can also find that there are actions taken, for instance, heritage for human heritage sake or for the sake of conserving what is precious to us for future generations, we will declare certain areas as protected areas. Whether it's uh, you know the Lake District or the Peak District or uh, the parks in the U.S., that's been the thinking uh, towards conserving that heritage. Now, there's also another way of looking at it, which is that in some cases the conservation itself created a cost for societies and that's sad and that should not happen but there is a via media and that's where you need to start looking at some of the other aspects for instance demonstrating value the question is once again as i was describing the gdp of the poor who benefits from this and if you start doing that and demonstrating value and also demonstrating its social dimension in terms of how that value is delivered and to whom it is delivered what kind of distribution of these benefits is happening you'll begin to start demonstrating value you will demonstrate, for instance, that protected areas do provide significant freshwater benefits to the cities and towns and communities nearby. You will demonstrate that the nutrients and freshwater recycling function of these forests is huge. You may demonstrate, and I'll go on and give you some actual examples of this many, many aspects. But once again, having demonstrated that, you don't need to convert that into an exchange. In other words, nobody needs to buy that forest or sell that forest from one person or the other. You don't need to exchange assets. You don't need to uh, involve in a contract, if you like. You can just demonstrate it and change policy. And then finally, you can work towards capturing that value, which means, yes, you've demonstrated it but still not working because guess what, someone's getting away with a free lunch and somebody else who is a responsible stakeholder is having to bear the cost. it's, It's my wildlife to go visit flying in a jet, but it's that poor fellow who's potentially suffering because I'm not paying him for it, who lives next door to the wildlife and has his goats and cows eaten up by them once in a while. So there's these cost and benefit divergences which are there. And for that, you can't just demonstrate the value because that's obvious. I paid for the jet flight into Africa. But you need to capture that value, pay some of that back to the community who's looking after or at least not being in conflict with that that wildlife, for example. And I'm going to now show how this works in categories because we recognize value in situations where we have intelligent regional land planning. We recognize value through legislations. We demonstrate value through schemes such as certifying economically friendly, uh, ecologically friendly activities and products and services. Or we demonstrate value in protected area valuations. And then finally, we capture value by setting up payments for ecosystem services, whether it's an upstream set of farmers who are not polluting the water which is used downstream, or whether it's poor communities being paid to look after or as against uh, destroy the wildlife habitats that they are close to. And interestingly enough, all of these activities are part of the TEEB canvas, and they break up into broadly three areas of norms and regulations and policies at one level, and then within that, economic mechanisms like certification, evaluation, payments for ecosystem services, and finally, markets. And by the way, I haven't yet talked about biodiversity markets because it's in that small orange square out there that you have markets such as, for instance, the wetland banking markets in the US or the biodiversity banking markets in Australia and so on. So yes, markets are part of the overall solution approach, but they're a very small part. And we mustn't ever lead ourselves into thinking that somehow it's all about setting prices and creating big exchanges where you start trading species and trading genes and trading large swathes of land. It doesn't work like that. Humanity is much more a complex set of societies. So I'll just give you what to me are, by the way, these examples come from um, a, a team for local governments and there are 120 examples that we've collected of successful policy of these five categories. And uh, I've just literally picked on my favourites. I'm sorry, but one does have favourites. But this is what they are. In the case of regional <laughs> land planning, I, I vote for the Baxing County in, in China. Uh, and they they in fact uh, redid a zoning plan a development plan in that county by using a a software which was provided to them called invest and applying that logic and finding which areas of the county were providing ecosystem services and then changing their land management plans to conserve the flow of ecosystem services to their areas to, to to that county and then to have development in areas which were less uh, significant as providers of ecosystem services. So once again, land use planning, but no no um, explicit economic analysis, but definitely an economic uh, attitude or, or a mindset. Uh, the Tubata Marine Park in the Philippines is great because it, this is about uh, coral reefs, um, but it's about people responding to the bleaching event that took place in 1998. Coming together, commun- local communities, local NGOs, local fisher folks, the local governments and the national government of the Philippines. Coming together in a kind of stakeholders meeting and deciding on their own that yes, it made sense now that the place was breached, The only way it will come back is if we create some form of no-take zone or protection. And they did that and uh, gradually the uh, reef biodiversity and the fish have come back. Indeed, the, su- the experiment has been so successful that they have in fact expanded the original uh, no-take zone. Uh, beyond that, with a 10-mile buffer around that in a marine reserve, and they have effectively doubled the area of the park. Uh, an increase in coral cover has been observed for the last uh, decade, and the fish biomass is basically now four-folds better than the average healthy reef in that area. I think of, of all, all my favorite types, this is probably the favorite of favorites, which is the wetland in Kampala, Uh, Nakivubo swamp was basically targeted. 40 square kilometers of land with a swamp somewhere in between was targeted for draining. Purpose? Well, swamp is useless. Uh, Agriculture and and, uh, uh, building more habitation is useful economically and generates GDP and so on. Usual arguments. Well, an IUCN economist pointed out to them that there was a little flaw in this thinking because that swamp was actually providing the main sewage treatment facility for the city of Kampala and that if they drained the swamp they would have to find an alternative sewage treatment facility the cost of which would be something of the order of two million dollars per annum and when they worked out the present value, the annual present value of the flows of of agricultural income after costs, then they found that those were almost an eighth or a tenth of the value of this alternative sewage treatment facility. So they actually decided not to drain the swamp. And in fact, now the swamp is part of the green belt that's been designated around the city of Kampala. And I think that's serious economics being brought in just in time, literally just in time, to change a policy decision which would otherwise have drained the swamp, converted it, and cost a huge economic cost to the city of Kampala and potentially disease and uh, suffering to the people around, not just those who, who would suffer from unhealthy conditions but also the local fisher folk who depended upon this swamp for their fish livelihoods. And a couple of examples from Japan where I was uh, recently for the, the launch of, of the team at COP10. Um, Satoyama is, is a, a Japanese concept, it's sort of living in harmony with nature and there are two examples uh, here but i picked the one for the uh, oriental white stock which is uh, from the city of toyooka uh, the oriental white stock had gone extinct in 1971 and uh, it was slowly brought back but basically by reintroducing organic agriculture because that ensured that the paddy is flooded even in winter which enables the uh, the food that the stork eats to remain throughout the year and enables the stock to survive and as a result of that, they have also managed to make use of the brand of the white stock to sell the organic rice at 25 to 50% premiums. So it's, it's still very much hobby farming because these are not large areas. 200 hectares is not huge in a Japanese context. But the white stock habitat has been effectively brought back, which is the paddy. Uh, they have introduced a, a visitor center, which has added to the income of that, of that precinct. And they collect something like $10 million per annum of income. Of, tourism income from that white stock activity, and uh, their uh, budgetary proceeds have increased by 1.4 percent, which may not impress many people here, but if you've been in Japan or familiar with Japan, then anything above 0.01 percent can be pretty impressive in economic terms and growth terms, so this is a fairly impressive number. The the stocks are there. Uh, I have to vouch for it. Uh, My wife and I will... I think we saw at least two breeding pairs in the wild. So clearly there is evidence this works. So what we have is effectively uh, from the uh, side of policy, clearly there are many effective solutions available. And frankly, I think that's another reason why we must end the economic invisibility of nature because not only are we aware of its costs and its risks and its impacts on exacerbating poverty, but also we have in our hands the solutions as well. So the excuses for inaction are relatively few. But what about the business side? Government doesn't determine anything, everything sometimes, or anything, sorry, Freudian slip. Uh, But the private sector does. The private sector is 70% of the economy or 78-75% of employment and pays and bridges most of the fiscal deficits of most countries. So what about us lot? I think there is a change in awareness happening, certainly. I'm not necessarily saying a lot of action yet, but certainly a change in awareness and pockets of interesting action. Businesses are becoming aware of their risks. I'm not just talking about BP and its oil spill, but generally businesses are becoming aware of their risks of treating ecosystems lightly. And they're also recognising ecosystems as resource inputs into their businesses, not just agricultural businesses and mining businesses, but generally across the swathe of activity. And they are therefore seeing the risks as well as the opportunities in the decline in ecosystem services due to the degradation of ecosystems. I just made a list out here of what we call BES, uh, biodiversity and ecosystem service type businesses, all the way from cosmetics to fisheries to forestry. The list is huge, 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 huge. And there are also some new businesses like biocarbon, Red Plus, biodiversity banking, and so on. Um, you know things are serious when Google starts investing in, in technology to be able to me- measure the forest densities and forest cover because you know that basically they would not do it unless they thought there was economic value out there. And you know that uh, when you have a company like Natura in Brazil, which is making a turnover of $2.4 billion, profits of $400 million, basically sourcing cosmetic uh, cosmetics and personal products from nature uh, sources and selling them through a network of more than a million housewives across Latin America. You know, they're onto something there. And the only reason, and I've met them in Brazil and talked to them, the only reason they won't sell anything here is because, well, you know, housewives in Europe, they work, so how will they do this? They, they don't seem to believe in the Western model of retail stores and shops and chains and, and stuff. They want to sell through housewives and networks, and that's their business. That's how they do things. Sorry. So I'll have to go back again and try once more. <laughs> There is clearly growing demand as well for eco-certified products and services. Um, you've heard all stories about how organic food and drink is improving in, in offtake. Uh, certainly certified products are increasing. Think number of things that are being certified as eco-friendly or forest friendly and so on is increasing. So there's clearly a, a consumer awareness in this space. And the fish market has been uh, overtaken by a huge amount of awareness. Um, of the issues of sustainable fisheries, and there is a lot of certification thinking going on there as well. Many many companies have come out with uh, ecologically friendly, rainforest-friendly, you know, fishing-friendly, sustainable fisheries, etc. products. And even from the investor side, uh, this is something I came across in Japan last year, that Sumi, uh, Sumitomo Bank, uh, Sumitrust and Banking Company, had basically started a biodiversity fund to invest in businesses which were biopositive. Uh, That's a non-trivial event because they are a serious group of investment aggregators, and uh, if they're there, then that means others will follow. And today, apart from the risks and the opportunities, the ability to understand your impacts on nature, to assess them basically, Uh, there's almost too much ability. Uh, People complain that they're confused as to what should they use and I have a lot of sympathy. I mean if you end up, if you just Google in working out business impacts on nature you will find so many different technologies and and uh, and websites and and support mechanisms that it's almost too confusing. But the fact is they are there and they're there to be used. And what can business do today? Quite a few things actually. I think it can literally engage in developing an awareness around its use of nature, recognizing that what's a public good and service today may not be tomorrow. Recognizing that what is a cost externality today may get internalized tomorrow. In other words, the risk may happen. Um, And finally, aiming to what we are calling in TIB a kind of net positive impact approach. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that just um, evangelizing this issue is going to succeed. I actually believe it will not. I think the enabling conditions for a green economy are vital, in fact the most important part of the change has to be the enabling conditions and not just human attitudes. So it's got to be a combination of both people willing to change and change behaviour and change processes, but also governments willing to change laws and rules to enable the new uh, businesses to survive. And there is a a significant amount of engagement happening in some leading companies, and I mentioned some of them here. Um, Coke has declared that it wants to be freshwater neutral by 2020. Um, Marks & Spencer, carbon neutral by next year. Rio Tinto wants to be a net positive impact on biodiversity. This is a mining company, by the way. They have a five-stage plan of how to get there, but they want to be biodiversity positive by 2015. Sony has, has declared that it wants to be environmentally neutral, as in everything, not just carbon, but biodiversity and everything, freshwater for that matter. And they've declared a, a, a strategy, a vision I should say, not a strategy yet, but a vision called Road to Zero. And Walmart, I think you've all heard the story about how environmental uh, responsibility has become their fourth criterion for purchasing. They don't just look at product price and, and uh, quality and, and after-sales service, but they also look at its environmental sustainability. So there are success stories, but these are, these are swallows. They don't make a spring and uh, the reality is that even though you may get pockets and sectors where there is success and change and there is sort of elements of a green economy, I still believe that, you know, you need the environment to change, the business environment to change and the regulatory environment to change. After all, um, the mammalian species did not simply appear one fine morning as uh, elephants and horses and and lions and tigers. Uh, They had to grow and compete for food with dinosaurs for a long time, hundreds of millions of years, And it was only events that we don't understand which eventually made the dinosaurs unable to survive and then the mammals to grow big and interesting and not just be small scurrying rats and mice who left off what was left. Uh, So in that same sort of sense, yes, we can have pockets of the new mammal corporations, but ultimately for (laughs) the planet to be a mammal corporation planet, you do need different sets of enabling conditions, and that's a question still, uh, still to be addressed. So I come to that question with just one example to show you once again that it is possible. Uh, there's a lot to be done, by the way. This is, if you like, the this is the report card of governments. This is what corporations who are interested in the change should be talking about to their legislators, about subsidy reforms, about tax credits, about certification and eco-labeling, about PES, about environmental responsibility. The European Union is a leader in that, about trading schemes like RED Plus and so on, and wetland banking and finally about access to information and and disclosing the right information and not just what is convenient. I use fisheries as an example to illustrate what is the issue if you are uh, not not able or not willing to look at the public goods problem and uh, uh, this is I think my last sort of serious example and and, uh, it is in many ways to me a telling story because we have created in global ocean fisheries a situation where open access to fisheries as well as subsidies for increasing feed capacity have resulted in a race to the bottom. We have the classical tragedy of the commons taking place. So here are some numbers. World Bank estimated lost productivity at almost 50 billion. We are risking uh, global industry, which is, if you like, $100 billion, $8,500 billion, but we're also risking the jobs of 35 million fisher folks, of which an estimated 27 to 30 million are actually poor. They are not uh, large-scale fisher folk, but they are actually artisanal uh, poor people involved in sus- fishing for their own families and for the local markets. And most of all, I think we are risking health, because if we continue fishing down the food web as we are doing, it's not just about having to make do with jellyfish in in 40 years' time because that's basically all that's left to eat. But it's also about what what are the people who are surviving on these fisheries for their protein supply going to do? Because fish do provide the main source of animal protein for over a billion people (coughs) in the developing world. In terms of the economics, there's a fair amount of analysis that's been done on this, but basically the 27, 30 odd billion dollars worth of fishery subsidies are largely going towards increasing the size and the capacity of fishing fleets. And the green line demonstrates that increase in fleet capacity. And at the same time, what's been happening is a decline in the catch per unit capacity. So, as any of you know, if you want to see the net result, you just have to multiply one line by the other, and the net result is no change. So all you've done is subsidize fishing fleets to grow bigger, get larger, fish further, fish deeper, exacerbate the problem, be less successful per unit of capacity, and be more wasteful. And here we have this amazing situation where we've got $27-$30 billion of subsidies, $50 billion of economic underutilization, so that's about $80 billion of waste in one form or the other. And guess what? The landed cash is worth $85 billion. I mean, if anyone has a better example of global economic stupidity, please show it to me. But I I vote for this one. It really is classic. But you know what? There is a solution and it needs going back to nature, understanding how things work. The reason why fish stocks repopulate so quickly in reserves where you have no take zones is very simple, is that I'm told by the scientists that female fish, if if they grow to twice the size, they can be 10 to 100 times as much as productive in laying eggs. So that vast increase in egg production, basically driven by just a doubling in the size of the, of the female fish is the basic driver for the repopulation of fisheries. If you don't fish them when they are too small, and this essential fact has succeeded in many places, but of course there are still skeptics. So, I want to use one example, which is from Georges Bank. This is actually uh, just off the coast of the U.S. You know, those of you who are familiar with geography can see that little curve, which is Cape Cod. This, these are our uh, satellite pictures where the dots and the colors of the dots represent vessel hours. So these vessels are being mapped and tracked. The blue dots are the lowest number of vessel hours and the yellow and the green and finally the red dots. And the areas which are triangles are basically the, no, the no-go areas, the, the places where fishing is not permitted. So this big triangle here, the smaller one out there, and a rectangle at the bottom. Now, on the face of it, it would look like, well, the fishermen are right. I mean, clearly there's no fishing going on in those areas, so clearly their livelihoods are being affected. They are not being able to earn. Mr. Sukhdev is wrong. He should shut up. But I invite you to look at the lower small triangle a little more closely, right? And it's the same little triangle out there. So here's what you see when you look more closely. All of the heavy fishing is going on at the edge of the protected area. Because guess what, it is protected, the fish have come back, but of course the fish don't know that there is a protected area, so they float past, and they float straight into the nets of the waiting trawlers, who fish all of their stock in the edges pretty much. You can, see this, you can see it from the colors, the intensity of fishing at the edge of the protected areas. So these are the same trawlers who said that, you know, conservation does not work, protected areas don't work and cost us a living. Guess where they are making a living? At the edge of the protected areas. So I rest my case. Satellite images, they don't lie. So, once again, I'd like to say it's not just in in policy examples that I gave to you, but also in business examples and looking at business and looking at the constraints and changing the enabling conditions, there are solutions. And yes, we must end the economic invisibility of nature, not just because it's a problem, but because we have solutions on hand. Let's explore purely within the business area what kind of opportunities there are. Emissions, carbon dioxide? Problem. But on the flip side, offsets and red plus, they are a solution. They are an opportunity. Habitat sorry. this is my daily news brief coming in. I just don't know how to stop this. Yeah. <laughs> Short of disassembling my blackberries. So it'll stop in one, one more. Yeah, good. OK. You can have biodiversity offsets, Conservation Bank. Freshwater overuse and, and shortage is a problem, but equally, there are opportunities in payments for watershed protection. We saw the marine footprint issue, but then there is sustainable fishing. Pollution and waste is a problem, but equally there's an opportunity in recycling, tradable permits, and so on. So there are opportunities against each of these problem spaces. And if we look at conservation and think of it not just as a nuisance or something that is, you know, an elitist activity, but recognize its economic value, especially to the poor, and then try and think about how big can conservation be as a provider Uh, you'll come to some interesting conclusions. So I compare conservation as a, quote-unquote, business sector, which, by the way, is still largely done by governments. There's very little private conservation. Um, I compare that with more mainstream um, activities like automobiles, steel, and IT services. Those classical businesses, if you like, have uh, turnovers, in other words, sales, if you like, turnovers of the order of Uh, half a trillion to about 2 trillion. So 1.8288 for automobiles down to 500 billion for steel. And they have capital employed in the range between 200 billion and about 2.2 trillion. And the typical number of people they employ globally, and this is direct employees, so not those who feed into the, for instance, uh, aluminium sector employees feeding into automobiles, but just directly in automobile sectors. The direct employments are of the order of 4 to 6 million. If you look at protected areas, the value of protected areas' public benefits to people, in other words, if you like, the sales turnover of the protected areas is of the order of $5 trillion. So it's almost twice the total turnovers of all the, well, nearly twice the turnovers of all those things. So the total value of what people are getting free but should be valuing, and if not paying for, at least valuing, is huge compared to what people are paying for in terms of the car they buy or the steel they buy or the IT service that they absorb. The capital employed is massive, so basically no matter how you value the capital, either as as a a present value of an annuity of services or by whatever other means, you will get to massive answers for the total value of natural capital. And yet, if you look at the total number of people today engaged in protecting protected areas, the estimates, actually that's the highest estimate, 1.5 million. I had estimates as low as 300,000 across all nations. So here's the challenge. Given that natural capital is... Uh, an asset class, given that it does provide public benefits, given that so many of those public benefits do make such a huge difference to the poor, why can't we recognize that there is an economic activity out here? And that it is possible to employ people to rebuild natural capital and pay them to generate wealth for society. It's part of an economic model. Indeed, even in this there are examples which are happening because the government of India a few years ago introduced a scheme called NREGA, National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, which has been spending quite a lot and of late has been spending about $6 billion a year largely to pay people to improve freshwater capture in the village areas, to build small dams to improve freshwater uh, retention, uh, to replant forests, to increase soil fertility and there are success stories aplenty because the employment generated is is of the order of 3 million employees, basically 3 million jobs every year as a result of this kind of activity. So there are significant And that's just one country. So there are significant opportunities if we get this right and significant benefits to the poor if we try and apply these uh, these approaches. So realizing the productive potential and the employment potential of natural capital stewardship is to me yet another reason why we must end the economic invisibility of nature. Finally, I look at measuring, because we keep talking about economic invisibility. What do you need to do to start making it visible is to start measuring it. And that's, again, fundamentally what TIEB's approach leads towards, which is to provide the toolkit for measurement. And the toolkit for measurement can be at the national level, which is to measure total natural production as part of the overall production of the country. And this is part of green accounting, where you go beyond GDP and you look at what nature produces and not just what factories make for you. And when you do that, you come to different answers about what is the national production, what is adjusted GDP. You come to different answers about how much is the capital gain. You might find that you've lost capital in the course of so called GDP growth because you've destroyed natural commons, which are generating effective and valuable services for the country. But you're not counting those, you're only counting manufactured production. Equally, on, on the corporation side, you need to start looking at the externalities of the corporation. Why is it okay? for corporations to continue generating costs to society. Uh, Is it carelessness, is it laziness, is it ignorance, is it a combination of these? Or is there some devious, subtle plan to keep it that way because it makes private money for rich people? I don't know, maybe it's a combination of all of those. But the fact is, it is not a good idea because it is destroying value for society. That's generally not a good idea. How do corporations report it? This is lovely, actually. Here's a study done by Price Waterhouse for the Teep Project, where they looked at the top 100 businesses. Now, please, this is top 100 businesses in the world. These are not mom-and-pop shops, and they're not fly-by-night operators. And they interrogated both their annual accounts, in other words, their official accounts, and their CSR reports with the same question, which is, is biodiversity and ecosystems a key strategic issue for you? Is it important but not very important, or is it completely irrelevant? So the same question was asked, interrogated on a database, to these two separate sets of reports from the same companies. And you can see that in the case of the uh, annual reports, more than 80% said biodiversity ecosystems are irrelevant, and only 2% said that they are very important. Whereas the same company's CSR reports, only 42% said that biodiversity is irrelevant, and a whopping 9% said absolutely vital critical. Now how is it possible for the same company to give you this two different, completely different answers to the same question? And by the way, these are not mom and pop shops, these are the world's top 100 companies. So there is a measurement issue even out here. Yeah, we, need to, we need to fix this, we need to have standards. I'm delighted that uh, Richard is here from the ICAW, the Institute of Chartered Accountants of England and Wales, uh, the ICAW and their partners are working towards trying to disclose these externalities and trying to create consistent metrics so that people can measure them and start disclosing them so that you and I can pick up a balance sheet and read it and find these numbers and not have to wait till Christmas Eve to get the CSR report and it gets lost in Christmas presents and we don't read it because we are too drunk for it and so on. So hopefully it will change. Thank you for taking that lead in, in this direction. And I think as that change happens, then we will begin to recognize a new reality, which is that natural capital matters. It really is very important. Ladies and gentlemen, think of capital wealth as having three dimensions. Three dimensions being physical and financial capital, which is bank accounts, buildings, bridges, roads, etc. Human capital, which is your intelligence, which generates incomes for you, your health, which enables you to do so, and your relationships within society, your community, and your family, the societal capital that surrounds you. And then think of natural capital. What provides you nature's goods and services, clean air, fresh waters, and the works. If you think of capital in three dimensions, and you now think, what is it that you are using to navigate this three-dimensional space? And you're looking at the one end at something called GDP growth. And you're looking at the other end called corporate P&L. Basically, these are very simplistic tools. You are in a three-dimensional space with complexity around you, navigating uncharted waters. You should be having something like a spaceship bank of instruments not just an old mariner's compass, which is what you have today in the form of GDP growth. We need change, because with this kind of compass, we cannot really ensure that we uh, avoid a crash. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you uh, thank you very much. Um, we have some uh, time for uh, questions. Um, I think what i 'll do is take uh, two or three uh, questions um, in a row and then allow uh, Pavan the opportunity to, to respond so I see a hand over over here and there was one over here so um, ladies, thanks. if you 'd like to say there was one next to as well. But anyway, if you'd like to tell me a question, Pete. If you'd like to say who you are, perhaps where you're from. Um,
2: my name is Daniela Jaramillo. I'm studying uh, in LSE, uh, Environment and Development. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, we're, you're mentioning how the Amazon jungle provides a wide range of ecosystem like, services. But there are also uh, parts of the jungle that have oil underneath. To what extent can we expect developing countries in South America which depend on oil uh, to pursue policies that actually protect ecosystem services given their short time frame and that their economy depend on them. Thank you.
0: And there was a question here. So. Um,
2: who protects uh, the ecosystem of um, ethnic minorities oppressed by the ethnic majorities, who plunder the uh, occupation army, plunders the environment of the ethnic minorities. For example, in Sri Lanka, the Occupation Army for the last 40 years has been cutting down trees. And the last five years, the the, the Sri Lankan Navy has been um, helping the Sinhalese uh, fishermen use the internationally banned nets. And uh, the Sri Lankan Army helps the Sinhalese uh, fishermen use uh, nationally banned uh, undersea water dynamites. Um, even the UN, um, the, the UN applies uh, uh, its uh, um, different um, mechanisms for, in different ways. It's very partial to different countries. The Secretary of Security Council or the Human Rights Council, even the Secretary General, uh, very partial to, towards different countries. So, where can the oppressed minorities turn to? Thank you, please.
0: Okay, and there was. Uh Sorry, for, for the moment, there was one, one more question, the gentleman at the, at the back. I just The hands that I saw come up first, but there'll be an opportunity
3: for everyone else as well. Hi, uh, my name is Bargov. I study uh, climate change just across the road at King's College. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for the enlightening lecture. Uh, my question is in two parts. The first part is, uh, what role do you think government regulation or a more globally uh, legally binding agreement play would play in... Uh, your sort of scenario because with globalization rampant, i mean if you Im- if you employ legally by, i mean uh, legislation in just one single country people just move move across the world and go elsewhere and exploit resources the second question is what role do you see uh, carbon offsetting and the emissions trading schemes popping up across the world and uh, the clean development mechanism of the un playing in your scenario
0: sure. yeah.
1: You address the questions in, in turn. They are interestingly all in kind of different areas. Um, oil in the Amazonas, and indeed oil in the uh, basin of the Amazonas. I think the key issue here is, is risk assessment. Um, when BP went in, or other oil companies went into the Gulf of Mexico, what they never calculated, because no one insisted on that calculation, was what I call ecological VAR, ecological value at risk. Um, If someone had done that cost calculation of the total value at risk of disturbing a particular ecology in terms of its cost in the case of of Mexico to local fisheries, to uh, local livelihoods along the coastline, ecotourism, to indeed the private Uh, yachts that are moored along the many marinas in that area and the uh, cost of the loss of that utility to the rich people who own them. I'm not only talking about poor people. If we had done all that calculation and worked out perhaps the ecological value at risk of an oil spill in in that area, you may have come to an answer of anything between 10 and 50 billion. There is a study by Costanza which actually estimated it at 50 billion dollars. Had that calculation been done, then spending half a million dollars on that little cap to prevent the oil from spilling would not have appeared to be such a silly economic choice. Right? So you need to start getting that thinking in place in terms of working out risks, because risks is what can happen to your PL. and right? A risk today is a cost tomorrow. If you think you can get away with just externalities, the answer is no. At some point, they come home to roost. So that's the first point that I would make. And the second point I will make is that Drilling is not per se a bad thing, the question is what you're drilling for. Because if, once again, the risks and the costs of oil is what we're talking about, Brazil itself has solutions to that. Brazil is is one country where uh, the use of ethanol and it's largely ethanol grown uh, based on on, uh, sugarcane grown in turn on areas which were earlier defunct uh, coffee farms. Largely that is where it's grown, it's not as if it's a rainforest cost. It's not the ethanol that is causing the problem there, is it? So if you have alternative fuels, then the question is, what is the purpose of that? Is it just to exploit the oil for current profit? Or is it better to leave that oil underground for a time when oil prices are, according to the International Energy Agency, more like $200? And that's a choice. That's a societal choice. You can exploit the oil in in 1980 and earn $14 per barrel, or you can exploit it in... uh, 2008 and earned $140 a barrel or you can maybe leave it for a bit longer than earn $200 a barrel. That's a choice that the people of Brazil and indeed other countries in the Amazon region have to make. When should they exploit? What's the opportunity cost of of exploiting too early, right? People don't think about these things and I'd encourage people to start thinking about them because oil is not an infinite resource. It's not like sunlight. sunlight is pretty much, uh, at least within our time frames, kind of infinite. Yeah. <laughs> uh, coming to the ethnic minorities issues, man, it, it is a vexed question and certainly it is the case that the poor tend to be the worst sufferers from the loss of ecosystems and biodiversity. Dynamite fishing and other forms of damaging fishing, whether it is dynamite fishing or whether it is cyanide poisoning or whether it is is bottom trawling. These are all forms of fishing which the UN and other bodies who are involved in fishing have um, significant uh, effort, put in significant effort to stop And if that is still continuing for political reasons or whatever reasons, then that's dreadful because it will have an impact on the ability of the poor to sustain their living from fisheries. So I recognize the problem. Unfortunately, the solution can only be in better governance and a better understanding of the cost to the poor of the loss of ecosystems. People have to stop thinking of conservation and protected areas as uh, luxuries for the rich it's not about conserving warm furry animals for the rich it is about ensuring that the livelihoods of the poor are defended biodiversity is not a luxury for the rich it is a necessity for the poor that's the reality and the, so well ma'am i can't uh, answer for the, any particular government but i mean i certainly say that the un is very keen to support the ideas and a lot of the work that i've presented to you today has been also presented in two important UN reports. One is the T set of reports and the other is the green economy report that was launched last month in Nairobi. So I think the UN is doing what it can to push these ideas forward and make people aware of of the social costs and make people aware of the inequity that generally results as a a result of the loss of ecosystems and biodiversity. Um, Regarding, uh, you you actually asked two questions. One was about um, government regulations and the fact that unless there is regulatory consistency, there can and usually is leakage from one part of the world to the other. Uh, I would say true and false, because if you look at uh, uh, the space of uh, carbon, carbon emissions and global warming and so on, yes, that's absolutely true, that emissions in one place can be offset by emissions in another, and it has to be either a global market or no market, because it doesn't make sense. It will not be an effective situation if it's just local or isolated or a single country. But there are all kinds of other aspects of biodiversity where it does make a difference if it's local. Um, You will get a huge benefit in terms of soil fertility, fresh water capture, fresh water usage, availability of nutrients, uh, availability of even fuel wood for poor communities, access for local ecotourism, and so on and so forth, which are all local benefits that come to the economy, either priced or unpriced as the case may be, from local biodiversity and from local ecosystems. So it's not a clear-cut case that uh, um, unilateral action by a country will always uh, result in some compensating uh, negative action resulting from somewhere else. That's not necessarily the case. You can have unilateral action within a country, indeed within a community, resulting in good for that community. Of course, that good may also result in positive externalities like better capture of carbon for the whole world and better capture of nutrients and fresh water for neighboring states. And then the question is, well, then, should you be asking the neighbor to pay you? And in my opinion, yes, you should at least ask. He might still say no. Um, uh, Your second question was regarding... uh, yeah, I, mean, I think I've answered your second question, which is, yeah, it has to be... A, for CO2, definitely, it's a global public bad, so you have to have a global marketplace. You can work towards it. It will not happen automatically. The reality is that it's easier to create a marketplace based on buyers and sellers. So take the Red Plus, which is basically the market which, which you must have explored, uh, which is on uh, forest carbon. Forest carbon already is on the verge of becoming a small club of buyers and sellers. We've got Norway and others supporting forest conservation in order to protect, uh, in order to reduce deforestation and reduce emissions from there. Uh, And you have several countries, more than 15 countries from rainforest nations who are at various stages of engagement with this process. So you may have a small marketplace, which is not 192 countries, but may well be 5 or 10 from the buy side and maybe 20 or 30 on the sell side, who are all working towards exchanging a valuable service called carbon storage for valuable financial flows in the opposite direction. Both are providing a service. One is reducing the potential cost to their global economies and to their developed economies of having uh, 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 um, Cost future costs, if you like, the way that Lord Stern had calculated them, future costs to their economies. So those are being reduced. So there's a benefit there, and they are passing some of that benefit in the form of a price for carbon storage. So you can have these marketplaces, which are not quite global in the total sense of 192 countries, but they are pretty open. So there are people coming to that marketplace with a commonality of interest, some buyers and some sellers. That I believe is possible. You don't need a fully global marketplace, but you do need a large number in in a particular space.
0: couple of uh, questions, uh, please I see many many hands uh, there's, there's two uh, over over here and um, a couple here so would you like to? This gentleman had his hand up before uh. sorry you mentioned the market and the fact that you thought the market was only a small part of the potential solution you kind of do you feel constrained to advocate the market uh, on the basis say of what has actually happened say in the EU trading system with CO2 and the fact there has been a lot of criticism of the EU ETS yeah. and that perhaps it hasn't achieved what people yeah. wanted it
2: to, to achieve.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, not really. But uh, let me comment on that EU example, actually, because the, I, I, would, I would argue that with the EU example, it's not the construct of the system that's the issue. It's, I think, the leniency in terms of providing too much credit. Uh, basically, what's happened is like, in, if you look at it in, in financial terms, it's like a central bank flooding uh, with issuance of currency. And obviously, then, net result is inflation. So the value of the money, if you like, dies. And that's what's happened. We've basically got a low value because too much has been provided. Now, had the issuance been purely on the basis of auctions, for example, I'm not saying it's the only way, but if it had been a pure auction system, I think the answers would have been quite different. So I, I, I I actually think the EU ETS is a good marketplace, but with the wrong... Uh, input in terms of in terms of those uh, emissions rights that were provided in the first instance, but having said that i, I wouldn 't argue that my own uh, skepticism about the totality of any solution uh, and the ability of markets to provide that has to do with the eu ETS, even if it had been a bad system because I fundamentally believe having spent twenty five years in markets that markets don 't solve all problems indeed, uh, someone recently wrote that markets are not uh, what is it um, um, Unfettered markets are not here to solve social problems. Well, That's in some ways an obvious statement, but in some ways a very deep statement, uh, because that is really true. Markets solve all kinds of issues in terms of depth, liquidity, pricing, transparency, allocation of capital, all kinds of good things markets do. But markets don't actually solve social problems. They don't solve distribution, for a start, and lots of other things which, which we are talking about today.
0: Okay, there was a question here and then I see lots of, lots of other hands, we'll get round to everyone I hope.
1: Good evening, um,
0: my name is Paul Foley, I'm a consultant. Do you think that conservation organisations have historically focused on species conservation to the exclusion of habitat conservation, this being a particular problem in marine ecosystems where the nature of distribution is very different and the, the focus hasn't been enough on extirpation as it were? Yeah. And conseq- if, if that is the case, how, how are businesses and governments going to avoid this mistake in the future and make sure they're not going to go too far in the other direction and actually understand what biodiversity is about and not just specific interests that they may have, i.e. low-grade development of
3: ecosystems. Shall uh, we
0: take another
1: question?
3: Frontier. Hello, um, Owen Daly from GHK Consulting. I um, would just be interested to hear what the next stages are for TEEB. It's kind of provided a good basis and synopsis of the science, but is it to get that message out there, or
1: you know, what are the next stages, really? Next steps,
0: yeah. okay. And then uh, jump in the green
3: shirt. Uh, hi, my name is Daniel Posen. I'm a master's student in the economics department at the LSE. Um, my question is about how you actually carry out these evaluations. Uh, environmental impact assessments, as I'm sure you know better than I do, are, are really difficult. Um, and different studies often come up with wildly different results and so I'm just wondering a sort of how you deal with that in general and especially how do you sell that to policymakers when they're dealing with sort of more certain economic numbers like GDP weighing those against more uncertain environmental numbers.
1: Thank you for all these very interesting questions. Uh, on the species issue, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. But you know, it's easy to be wise with hindsight. Uh, I mean, yes, people should have thought of the habitat conservation issue. They should have thought of economic valuation issues earlier. Well, that's life. I mean, they didn't. Uh, but having said that, the, uh, it should not be that we go the opposite end. And I think taking an economic approach, or the TEB approach, as we call it, all this actually is not the Teab approach. It is an approach that the Teab community has liked. That's TIBS is a community. It's basically lots of people in this room. It's it's people who are researchers, scholars, politicians, bureaucrats, businesses, and so on. And and the research scholars have agreed that, yeah, there is a kind of conservative approach which everyone more or less agrees with, and that's the TEEV approach. So following that approach, I think, will make a difference because it will mean that you don't go too much on either side, as in totally ignore species, because guess what? There is value for species. There is willingness to pay. So that brings me to the the question that was asked here. Contingent valuations, willingness to pay estimates, are among the means that are used for estimating the value of species aspects of biodiversity. If you want to work out the the value of, for instance, uh, bioprospecting, you literally have to look at the spending of pharmaceutical companies as our project did, Giles, you may remember, in, in India, when looked at the all the companies which use natural cures and how much money they had spent either researching the cures or purchasing ma- materials from, from, uh, from the source for those cures. So you look at the costs, if you like, uh, that are involved here. And you also look at, uh, for instance, for tourism, travel costs. I mean, if if I've traveled from the UK to Africa with my family and spent X amount of money, then the benefit that I got from that travel must have exceeded the cost, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. And therefore you look at travel costs as an approach. Then you look at values of properties with and without proximity to biodiversity. The same building complex with a national park next to it Uh, or close to it will be worth more or with clean atmosphere around it will be worth more than a polluted atmosphere and distance from a national area. So there'll be, take Central Park in in New York, if I buy something on 58th Street which overlooks the park, it may be an apartment which is a thousand square foot but it'll be worth two and a half million dollars. If I buy something on the other side on 57th Street it'll be worth one and a half million dollars just because that had a view of the park and this doesn't. Nothing else has changed. I mean it doesn't matter where you get off and the lift is pretty much the same. So, clearly, people value these, and you can put in estimates for these values. And you're right that they're not as, quote-unquote, certain as GDP, but I'll tell you my own story on this, where someone raised this issue way back when we launched the first monograph in GIST in India. And the head of the Central Statistical Office was there in the panel, and he basically said... I am the head of the CSO and by the way I'm telling you that the GDP is an estimate and it's just that you're not familiar with the estimates with the with the assumptions that we take in these estimates for GDP in India and that Mr. Sukhdev and his colleagues here are being honest and open and he turned to us and said, Please keep doing that. Next steps, I, I think... If, do we have more time, John, or is this the last question? Um,
0: no, do we, have a, we have quite a few more minutes. Okay. And, uh, there's actually quite a few more hands over, over y- if here. If you so don't mind, we'll I'm going to take that, to that as the last so, so that it rounds things up. Do you want? Okay, I need to so pay attention to this side of the room yeah. uh, this time. Um, so there's a, a couple of questions here, and then there was one at the...
2: Emmanuel, Uigo LSE Ideas. I have a question about the situation in Somalia, because the pirates are claiming that previously they were fishermen but because of widespread western trawling in their area it's been overfished and they have to turn to maritime piracy as an alternative source of living. Is this a real concern or is it something they just manufactured?
1: No, no, it's a, it is a real past concern but the great news is that I believe because of the piracy people have stopped fishing so the fish stocks will the fish stock will restock and then they can go straight back to their old business you know.
0: There's a question over here.
1: Um, good evening.
3: My name is Miriam Smith. Coming from a biological perspective, i um, got a question. Um, some Western governments and certain um, high net worth individuals have provided financial incentives um, to countries governing high profile environmental assets, such as, for instance... The Amazon um, and protecting it from deforestation. Yeah. How does this kind of top-down approach impact a more sustainable and practical um, approach to ecosystem valuation?
0: Okay. While we're waiting, should we just take uh, there's, there's one question at the back and then Salvatore, you a Question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. David Muir, economist, and I build natural houses. Uh, Is the TEAT initiative uh, trying to make a monetary figure akin to Costanza uh, Real? Sorry, sorry, could you repeat that question? right. Is the initiative you're a part of trying to produce a monetary figure measuring natural capital, as in the flows of capital, as in Costanza Real's 96 figure of 33 trillion, or is it measuring stocks of capital? Um,
2: I think obviously both are
0: important. And I know India is trying to produce green GDP figures by 2015, mm. but given China started implementing this policy and took it off quickly, are you optimistic about the prospects of green GDP figures? Okay,
3: Salvatore, do you just want to...? Um, Salvatore Di Falco, Lissi. Thanks so much for your talk. Evan, um, just a thought about the measurement side of the story, which I think is crucial. Um, yeah. Clearly here, we're observing a very complex phenomenon. And indeed, it's very diverse by definition. Yeah, yeah. And uh, um, I wonder if it would be better to open this black box called biodiversity and start looking at species conservation, fishes conservation, uh, crop genetic diversity in, in a kind of separate uh, setting in order to come up with better evaluation exercise. Mm. And the second. Uh, observation I have is um, I really like the picture um, of seeing the how developing countries are dependent on natural capital mm. um, and I mean that's a very nice static picture I wonder what would be the dynamics of it so trying to start to understand what will be the impact on natural capital in terms of uh, economic growth and if you have a sense um, what would be uh, the graph there if you wanted to relate growth, mm. natural mm. capital. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Shall I address those? Yeah. Yes. Firstly, let me try and take the two economics questions in terms of stocks and flows. Um, the TEB addresses both stocks and flows. And uh, the Costanza number is actually what I was referring to in my in my two-planet example. Because uh, someone, yeah, Costanza came up, but he, uh, he, I admire him because he came up at a time when this was not even thought about. So he made a huge point by making something bold, uh, as making a statement that you know total natural uh, economy is 33 trillion dollars versus what was then measured as GDP as 26 trillion dollars. So you know we are more important. I mean, the you know the big swinging. Dot dot dot. Example of investment banking clearly has a lot of sway because people woke up to it. So I don't. Uh, I have no real quarrel with Costanza in terms of the tactic that he employed. But I would argue, as someone did, that you know Costanza's estimate was a significant understatement of infinity. So that's the answer to uh, answer that question in terms. Of <laughs> in terms of the stocks versus flow we have to do both. Uh, If you are trying to look at what is natural production, that is a flow, but if at the same time you're trying to account for depreciation, which you do in the case of physical capital but don't in the case of natural capital, you have to look at the changes in stock. So you have to see, for instance, to what extent water quality has diminished in terms of BOD, COD levels and what it means to reinstate that quality. You have to see how much forests have cover has declined. You have to see how much forest density has declined. So these are stock measurements. So you have to measure both the flows which are missing as well as the stocks which you are seeing and observa- or observing to decline. And by the way, it doesn't always have to be a decline. It has. To, it can be positive. It can be a, an increase in stocks and hopefully it will be. So the answer is that our approach in terms of the, the way it is framed must include both flow and stock measures. And. Um, GDP of the poor is is an interesting toolkit of just making the point on the dependency. But the reality is, as you rightly point out, that in all countries, including the three, India, Brazil, Indonesia, even over the time that we are talking about, this will change. And I'm delighted that, uh, if I can say that, uh, LSE and, and I am also involved in trying to get this whole uh, metric to be implemented, which means having the means of measuring literally from the national level, which we have done as you can see on the base of models, down to the state level down to the community level that 's when that 's when when you begin to have a time series in this measure which has needs some work that 's when it becomes really interesting because then you can ask questions like did that percentage change for good or bad reasons, as in did it change because guess what the value of incomes came in from other sides whilst it was maintained at the base, so like the increase in per capita went like this, whereas this was continuing, or did it increase like this and this went down, so you kind of created destabilization, but today we don 't have the data to ask those very relevant questions so uh, it 's work to be done but you 're right to point out that we need that dynamic measure in fact government level planning especially at the local government would need that dynamic planning because that's what they're trying to do they want to you have to try and maintain that base which is basically the means of the poor to survive so it is it is the sort of life assurance that ecosystems provide which has to be kept and then you have to build on that and start measuring it without measuring you cannot you cannot manage um and the other question here was on does top down really work i mean when countries particularly provide large sums of money to be used in developing countries. Uh, the point I'll make simply is that uh, the risks are well known. Poor governance is, is something that will cause problems in distribution. Um, you will get money going into the hands of the elite within poor communities you will get money going into the hands of states which are unable to implement the sort of schemes that we are talking about in terms of red plus but at the same time if you are careful in constructing these schemes if you are holistic if you are looking at ecosystem benefits across the board i think you can you can succeed and there are unfortunately today i would say there are probably more examples of failure than success but that doesn't mean that there will not be more of success we are in a new uh, we are in a new and an experimental period, where we are trying out something new, which is a kind of payment for ecosystem service, which is complex, which works only if levels like the local community, the state and the nation are involved, and works when you have to unfortunately consider not, in my opinion, not just one service, but all services, otherwise you end up having either empty forests because you're rewarding carbon or the opposite if you're not. So there's an element of, of these these issues which people in designing REDD plus schemes, for example will talk about everything sometimes and rightly talk about community aspects and rights and, and so on, but they will forget that mechanism structuring matters. They will forget that how you frame this whole proposition, how you measure it, how you manage it, is vital. That's the mechanism. How does it get enforced? What is the law that you use locally to in- ensure the flow of benefits? How do you measure performance? Is it going to be past, present, or future levels of, of emissions or deforestation that you're trying to capture, measure, et cetera, manage? People are not looking at that, and I think I'm just a bit... Uh, um, puzzle that it doesn't get the focus that it deserves and I hope that doesn't continue. My my last response would be to your question sir on on where next for TEAVE and I think with that and with some light entertainment I, I'll close. Um, is is like a sort of um, set of initiatives which kind of landed into societal space and it has splintered. Uh, it has splintered because it was meant to. It was meant to to propagate. And therefore, you will find at the country level, there are a few leading countries which have taken on, they like this idea that, hey, you can actually make use of economics and this framework called TEEP approach or whatever it is. Let's use it to make some intelligent decision making. So Brazil and India have launched country, sorry, India has launched, Brazil is launching next, this week on 23rd, day after tomorrow, uh, a country TEEP project. Uh, Germany, likewise, has announced that it will. The European Union is, is going ahead with it. And uh, uh, Peru is very interested. I'll find out on Thursday whether they're launching or not. So there's clearly interest at a country level. Then there's interest at local community level because there are many communities who've kind of come to us saying, hey, by the way, you forgot us. You've talked about the Toyo-Castoke example. What about this other swamp where we did this and did that? There's stuff happening out there. So people are coming out with more examples of success, and that's great because we can build that and build that into case material. On the business side, um, I talked about uh, the T for Business Foundation, which which is being uh, being addressed, but there's also a lot of uh, positive interest in terms of the risk and opportunity, things like the calculation of the value at risk or the ecological VAR. Uh, I've been in discussions with with a few banks who, in fact, originated the VAR concept to try and get them interested in in this concept as well. Bankers don't generally look at the ecological risk that their companies face. They look at market price risk. They look at, you know, market share risk. They look at obsolescence. They look at all kinds of risk factors, but they don't look at the ecological risk typically. But it can be done, and um, that's another space for TEEB to explore. Another space that TEEB is is should explore. And when I say TEEB, again, it's a community of more than five hundred people who were contributing authors to this, this set of studies. They should explore TEEB, Teeb and agriculture because there are flows from agriculture, costs to ecosystems, and vice-versa benefits from ecosystems to agriculture. The, the, these equations have to be looked at. There's a need to look at TEEB for specific biomes like wetlands, and there is a study which is going to be launched. So there are country studies, there are business sector studies which are being engaged on to work out corporate externalities. There are uh, examples of successful implementation on the ground, and hopefully more to follow. And there are... Uh, sectoral analyses between nature, if you like, ecosystems on the one hand, and other aspects of human activity on the other, such as agriculture, uh, there's actually a lot going on. So it, it has kind of moved, uh, it's, sorry, when I say, I have, it has, it is beginning to move into people's space in many aspects of society and that's good because what we wanted when we began this tea project was mainstreaming. We wanted to mainstream the economics of nature. and. Um, if if I had been less foolish in thinking of this complicated term called T-E-E-B, then I would have called it 10. Very simple, the economics of nature, and everyone would know what it's about. <laughs>
0: Too late for regrets now. It's too late now, I know, it's just, just far too late. <laughs> so I think on that, uh, on
1: that note of um, uh, team and, and the future, we, we should conclude, so yes. that just so
0: leaves one, it.
1: So one, one oh. last point is that they, the, the other thing that should happen is communication, and I'll leave a couple of films on, which those of you interested, films which are 45 seconds. People need to understand what this is about. I'm sure you all do, but there's several billion people out there who don't. So that's one more thing. Sorry, to finish my okay, question, no. but which which needs to be. Sorry,
0: done, so. just really for me to uh, to thank you all for for coming on behalf of the Department of Geography and Environment, and the the Grantham uh, Research Institute, and also uh, to offer one last expression of our gratitude uh, to our speaker, Pavan Sukdev, for giving us such an informative and and inspiring uh, talk. Thank you very
2: much.